This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We live in remarkable times. More and more people are waking up to an expanded sense of what it means to be human, to be connected beyond the self to nature, to the wild hum of the universe. At the same time, the world around us feels like it's coming apart at the seams. The foundations are quaking. These challenges call us toward our own self-actualization so we can be in service to creating a better reality. The opportunities are huge. The dangers are real. You're just in time for the evolution. Welcome to The Evolver, where each week I talk with inspiring pioneers of the new consciousness culture. If this show speaks to you, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Acast, or on the podcast app of your choice. And to support what we do, please share this episode with friends at the Full Moon Circle, post about it on social media, and leave a rating on iTunes. Our email address is theevolver at evolver.net for feedback, and you can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Now, let's get started. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. If you're like me, having that big insight, that experience of the visionary, that visceral embodied sense of being connected to something larger than yourself is a fork in the road moment. You can ignore it, shelve it as a strange anomaly. Maybe it was a hallucination or maybe you're insane. Maybe it wasn't anything at all. Then, as time passes and its vividness fades, the mundane, worn shoe familiarity of muffled existence reasserts itself. Eventually, the striking clarity that caught your attention for an instant has been explained away as a weird blip, probably the result of something you ate. Or, you can grab hold of that moment of wild, energizing connection as an invitation to something more. That's the choice in front of you. You may not even realize that this choice is available. In our society, those moments of insight are treated as no more than disruptions of brain chemistry, and the assumption is that one day, neuroscience will explain them away. The faster you can forget seeing all that light, the better. But throughout history, until modern times, those flashes were considered gifts from source. They came from your guides, the gods, the universe. Pick any cultural framing that feels good. And demanded that you see reality as it truly is, and that you make yourself available to what it has to offer. So you're standing there at the fork in the road. In one direction is a well-paved avenue, lined with mowed green lawns and pruned gardens, seemingly smooth and straight for as far as the eye can see, with all of society cheering you on to stay on the familiar sanctioned path. In the other direction, 
is a windy, hilly dirt road, hard to make out, that seems to disappear into an overgrown forest. Then, in the far distance, appears to climb up a cliff face and eventually fades into low-hanging clouds. And there ain't no one else there. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you've experienced this moment or something similar. And you've likely ignored the advice of everyone you know and took that strange dirt road as far as it would go. Which, of course, is forever. Because once you've gotten that glimpse, once you've been turned on, there's no denying what it's calling you to. My guest today got that glimpse early, through a powerful connection with nature. And as we discuss, he spent the rest of his life finding ways to return to that initial vision, that excitement, clarity, and insight. Chris Wink is an award-winning writer, director, actor, designer, and composer who co-founded Blue Man Group and The Blue School. He's currently developing several new multimedia theatrical experiences. As I'm sure you know, Blue Man Group is one of the most recognizable theatrical creations of the past quarter century. The show is currently running in six cities around the world, including Berlin, Vegas, and New York, its city of origin, plus touring companies coming to a city near you. They've made iconic commercials, won theater awards, and a Grammy. At first, you might not think of the strangely alien Blue Man as the product of a massive hit of nature consciousness. But for Chris, the line connecting the two is direct. This is a fun and wide-ranging conversation about how to bring spiritual epiphanies into public expression through art. Along the way, we talk about knowing when you're in alignment to the way your body feels, how the playfulness of Blue Man inspired an innovative approach to education, and the connection between the deep blue Blue Man color and the void. Returning to that heightened state of awareness and being able to hold it and stay with it for longer and longer periods of time is something that all of us can learn to do. It's by hearing the stories of those who have dedicated themselves to this endless exploration that we pick up clues about what might work for us on our own journey. But the first step is to choose that path, embrace it, and dedicate yourself to it. Then, let the wild rumpus start. Everyone seems to be talking about CBD these days, that is, cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component of cannabis. The buzz is that CBD doesn't make you high, like THC does, but for conditions such as stress and anxiety, health professionals are increasingly recommending it as an alternative to pharmaceuticals, and scientific research is showing that CBD is highly anti-inflammatory, so it can help with pain relief. What does the scientific research say about CBD? Research centers in the United States and elsewhere are studying the effects of CBD on a variety of ailments. Scientists refer to CBD as a promiscuous compound because it offers therapeutic benefits in many different ways while tapping into how we function physiologically and biologically on a deep level. Extensive preclinical research and some clinical studies have shown that CBD has strong antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, antidepressant, antipsychotic, and neuroprotective qualities. What's the best way to take CBD? CBD-rich cannabis oil products can be taken sublingually, orally, as edibles, lozenges, beverages, tinctures, and gel caps, or applied topically. Concentrated cannabis oil extracts can also be heated and inhaled with a vape pen. Inhalation is good for treating acute symptoms that require immediate attention. 
the effects can be felt within a minute or two and typically last for a couple of hours. The effects of orally administered CBD-rich cannabis oil can last for four hours or more. But the onset of effects is much slower, like 30 to 90 minutes, than inhalation. Evolver is the proud papa of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary located in the Bowery District of New York, where you can find the finest quality CBD products available without THC. We also make our own premium CBD under the Plant Alchemy label. Our producer Jose's mom uses it for stress, anxiety, and high blood pressure. Our plants are grown in both field and greenhouse environments, cultivated using living soil organic principles, leveraging strictly organic inputs, and in full compliance with the controls defined by the Colorado Department of Agriculture. Our plants are some of the highest CBD cannabis varieties currently known. You can find out more about CBD by visiting the Alchemist Kitchen website at thealchemistskitchen.com. There's an S in there. And searching for CBD. There are articles on the blog, an FAQ, and a selection of vetted products. Or stop by our spot at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan, between Bowery and 2nd Avenue, and talk to one of our staff herbalists. At the shop, tell them you listen to the Evolver podcast and receive a 10% discount on any product on the shelves. I was um, talking earlier this afternoon to an artist who, who I bought a painting of his in like 1995. Oh, who's that? His name is Bruce Pearson. Uh-huh. And uh, he does abstract work. It's really, it, it, it looks like something a blue man would buy. It's like, um, mm-hmm. you know, glow colors and they're almost like amoebas. It looks like a, a, a it's, and it's, it's, it's a painting, but it's a sculpture. It's, it comes out about 18 inches off the canvas. Oh, so it's, wow. it's a, it's a sculpture that hangs on the wall. Yeah. 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 No, it's in your apartment. Yeah. Yeah. The orange one with the, with the, all the little amoebas and the balls. Yeah. And stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Nice. So nice. that is by Bruce Pearson. I just kind of liked him. I, I don't know how I met him exactly, but, um, but he's gone on, you know, he's done pretty well. He said he's been in a group show at the MoMA and he's oh, got, wow. you know, he's, he's brought a film and gallery represents him. And, you know, and, but there's, there's somehow or other two little pieces of the, of the ends got a little dinged, got like chipped oh, off. That's because your parties get a little too raucous. Perhaps. And so I, uh, I mean, there was one party that was nuts, man. I, I got I got um, rock, you know, like confetti launchers, but like, you know, rock star grade, you know, synced solenoids on like, I had like 16 of them oh all filled with glow confetti. The black lights were on and we just, all at once, we just went, and it was a whiteout. <laughs> it was a complete white. It was like Slava's snow show. Awesome. In my, and I also oh had a, um, a, a leaf blower to keep it going. <laughs> People were just like, what's happening? It was like an instant state change. You know what I mean? It, was, it wasn't like gradual. It was like in... And it made a big sound, you know, and people just were so, you know, the power of surprise. Nobody saw should, it coming. It's a magical thing. There's like different things that you can do that are manipulative on the one hand, but that are potentially catalytic for a kind of, you know, ecstasy state, you know? Yep. And get you into this other place entirely. Yeah. You love blacklight. I do. always have. And it doesn't, and it's, it doesn't get old. Like there's two things that don't get old, black light and strobe light. Like strobe light, there hasn't been improved. Neither one have been improved upon since the sixties. Like the, mm. in fact, as a teenager, I collected those black light posters, the Marvel 
series that was you over. had them in beautiful condition on your in yeah. your apartment. Yeah, the, I, the Jack Kirby. Yeah, exactly. You know, those are originals from the from, and I had to I had to track them down on 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 eBay. Oh, those some of the ones you I had, had as a kid. No, they're not the same exact ones, but they are like the Silver Surfer and other things. I had that in my in my bedroom as a teenager, and then. Even prior to that, I managed to, because we grew up here in Manhattan, and I somehow made my way to some weird performance art as an as a eight- or nine-year-old and saw black lights and fog and projections onto a big, you know, inflatable balloon and stuff. And I was like, this is cool. I, I, don't, I didn't know what to call it. It didn't have a name. It was just sort of multimedia stuff. But so I've always liked black light, and I've liked it because— it feels magical, you know. It yeah. feels like the colors are are brighter than you could. Then, then, then seems real realistic. And theatrically, I like them because I like the idea of an experience that reminds us of the magic. It isn't mm-hmm. sort of showing us the magic. It isn't telling us the magic. It's sort of reminding us because we all kind of know it already, you know. Yeah. But, well, Blue Man is full of that that sense of like magic pop moment. It's a shot, like usually through surprise, Often, something you don't expect happening, and then it's like, whoa, your perception gets warped. Yeah, that's a fun thing to do is to play around with maybe expectations. There's a sort of a a, a vibe, and then it's sudden a sudden state change is a very great way to create a, a, a almost a hormonal response, you know, a bodily response in the viewer. I'll tell you a story um, about blacklight because. When Blue Man Group was still just you know, scrappy, you know, me and Matt Goldman, Phil Stanton, and maybe a few other friends just kind of roaming around New York and trying to just build whatever we could on our own, in our in our own apartment, and going to these one-offs. We, we managed to come up with uh, some strobe lights and some black lights. Like somebody either donated it or very, very cheaply or, you know, somehow we got, it, you know, some kind of, and, um, and we were so happy. And we played around with the strobe lights, you know, with the paper uh, on the audience. Well, I remember the first time we put some paper rolls on a on a paint roller and just hung them up over the audience and just to see what would happen. But we hit it with strobe light, and it was this amazing effect because the audience felt free. They didn't feel like anyone was watching them if they stood up. It wasn't just that it was fun and that it was kind of a visual, you know, you know, strobe light sort of a fun visual. And it wasn't just that there was paper roaming around and it was sort of chaotic. I think on top of that, the audience was aware that there was too much going on, too much perception overload uh, for anyone to be watching you. So suddenly now you have the self-consciousness go away. Because, you know, if, if you've ever tried this, we did this a lot of times, hey, everybody, get up and dance. Or, hey, everybody, take an instrument and play along. And uh, if, 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 I, if that happens to me on a show, I'm like, I don't know. You know no way. I, I came here. To, I mean, I'm not very <laughs> shy, but I'm like, I came here to see you. And I don't, and these people are looking at me. You know what I mean? That's, I don't know them. The explicit invitation is never the good invitation. No, and, and, but also the, the, the context of in public with people watching you is not very freeing. So the, the strobe light paper combination gave people uh, a kind of freedom because they knew no one could in that context be looking at them. Mm-hmm. So everyone's having almost a private moment in public in that moment. And so similarly with the black lights, 
you know, we we have a scene where the the tubes subtly change from white to colors. You know, we've had, we found some invisible paint that works that way. And there's just a magic that happens when, you know, the paper can glow, the paint glows, all that stuff. And so, but there was a time, though, when we were in Vegas and we had a fancy uh, staff, you know, and they were proposing a, additional pieces of state-of-the-art equipment. And in that final scene, one of the scenes where we use blacklight, there was suggestion to use some of these new LED units that had come along and mm-hmm. to kind of make it prettier. And it really took away from the experience because pure strobe is has that disorienting effect. If you add other lights to it to make it pretty, you actually undermine the disorienting nature of the pure strobe. Right. And then pure blacklight, pure blacklight, um, you know, it's still a dark moment, but the LEDs have a lot of, you know, white light in them mixed in. And Mm. so it's not pure. So neither of those things, the the more state-of-the-art versions of it or the more designed versions of it are not as good as the originals from, you know, way back when we started. Do you know where blacklight came from? Like whose idea was that? Sometimes I bump into these things, you're like, Somebody had this idea, and I had time to Google, right? Well, yeah. I mean, God, that's a great question. It must have been an accident, though, right? If somebody had filtered out—I mean, you can take a regular fluorescent tube, and if you just filter out everything but the the visible violet end of the spectrum, that's a black light. So all it is is a regular light with a filter. I mean, you can, you can make it other ways, but it's it's just the, mm. the the narrow band of the of the light spectrum all the way to the end. Uh, towards towards violet, even before they had day glow paint, because that was something that somebody discovered. Um, somebody put sort of phosphorescence in paint. There's some story I read, a children's book on the subject of the person who invented day glow paint. It was in World War maybe two, and they were trying to make you know safety outfits and safety paint for you know tra- traffic control that, that that type of thing. That was the the idea, but then. They discovered that when you mix the sort of phosphorus into the paint. But before that, someone must have had a black light and seen something glow, like a tonic water glows, you know, um, you know, very white fabrics glow, you know. Um, and um, those were probably the first things that, you know, the first black like effects is that they were like, wow, that's kind of cool. And you know, in the state of pure, full-on awakening, everything glows. That's right. Well, and I think maybe that's also why, um, you know, I've I've always been attracted to it because, I mean, I'm I'm not sure what a state of awakening is exactly. I'm not sure I know either, but I've just that's but I'll, my I'll, supposition. I'll tell a story though. When I was 14, I was uh, hiking out in the uh, Four Corners area with as part of a camp. I actually went to a geology camp, and we would. Uh, go looking at the old abandoned silver mines for rocks and crystals and stuff, you know, things that had been thrown off that weren't of value, you know, commercially, but to a rock collector, they were, they were cool, you know, and we would fill up our backpacks and it was really, it was a great experience kind of for a city kid, especially. Um, But one time I was, we were going up a a mountain range somewhere and I kind of walked ahead of the group and then I started running ahead. I got a little bit further up and I had kind of a, a mystical experience. It was just simply that, you know, the, I felt all the, the, the plants and trees were singing to me. And as I got up further, it was just sort of, I felt like I had infinite amounts of energy. I felt like I was floating, flying. And then indeed, the vividness of all the 
nature colors just, you know, against the, the blue sky and then the desert off into a distance just became this amazing experience that, that really moved me deeply. And I, I wrote a letter about it. Thank God I kind of captured it because I would have, I mean, I would never have forgotten it, but I, 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 I might have wondered if I, I'd really had an experience. I had rewritten it, but I had this letter that I sent to my family and it described all of those things. And um, oh, it's I, great to have the actual language because, yeah. you know, man, those, the, you know, years later, especially when you're a teenager. Yeah. Like, yeah, you can have a, you have a fuzzy sense of what that was, but yeah. you actually can go and, and see what, how you described it to your parents like so many years later. So, what and, did it actually. And, and well, one of the things that, that, that um, may have prompted it as well is that I actually had a, like a portable radio. And I was able to get uh, a station or or maybe it was a, I don't know, I guess, I, I don't know how, but I had music with me. So I had a soundtrack and music's always been so important to me. And so I had this soundtrack that was the perfect kind of soundtrack somehow. And uh, somehow I think it was like Cat Stevens or something. You know? Gorgeous. And so in a way that was my first multimedia experience. Maybe not my first, because I had I'd run across some performance art even when I was younger, but it, it sort of was this um, heightened ecstatic experience. And, and in a way, it ruined me in one regard, in that w- later as I went through prep school and college, I started to think I should get a job, a normal job and some logical job. And I wasn't really a you know, a, a skilled painter or artist, or, you know, I liked, I was a drummer and I liked that. And I dabbled in, in acting and stuff, but I wasn't like, it wasn't anything that was just this, this clear path for me, especially because I'd liked many different things. Um, so I thought, well, I probably should just get a job, you know, and I think on some level. Did I, you study theater in school? Well, I studied, uh, I actually, I studied mostly music and art and a little bit of theater, but I, I studied acting after I got out of college. And I was actually after this, this experience that I had of, of realizing that in a way I needed to get back to the mountain somehow. You know what I mean? The mountain haunted me. Like I, I needed to have that experience. And for me, it wasn't necessarily about going literally back to a mountain. The question for me was, how can I create that experience for myself and perhaps others? So that experience was so, so, yeah. so strong as a teenager that you kept thinking, but years later, you kept wanting to go back to like, how can I have that, that vibrational thing happen? I really believe that. Uh, Yeah. It was, it it made it so that I knew I couldn't settle for something non-vibrational. So that experience was so vivid for you and so out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. that years later you felt, I got to get back to that state somehow. Yeah. Did you think of it as a spiritual state? Well, kind of. I was almost embarrassed about that component of it because that didn't quite fit my worldview. I was very science-oriented, and I, I was rebelling against my, my father, who was a minister, uh, but, a, but a theologian. He, by the time I was my teens, he was a professor of theology. But there was a kind of a rebellion against uh, organized religion that happened for me very early on. I just didn't didn't re- resonate, and and also you know I became very much you know empirically based, science kind of based, you know, into geology and all that stuff. And uh, so I I there was a part of me that was like, well, that was pretty 
magical. Uh, but you know, I, I'm. It was just me, you know, being a dreamer, and I was just sort of doing all of that. But yeah, so, can same, I mean, so yeah. I'm going to ask a you know, yeah. flat-footed question. So, did you use language like God or something like in order to? explain to yourself what had happened. I never used the term God because it, it felt like it would uh, label it in some way. But I used the language, the, uh, the mythopoeic language of the mystical experience in that letter. You know, it said, I felt like the f- flowers and plants were singing to me as I was going up the plant, uh, the path. I, I jumped up in the air and did a backflip and the, out of my body and the old me fell to the side and the new me kept going. And then at the top, I saw my journey, my road went off forever, you know, over other mountains. So all the language is of uh, kind of a mythic quality, kind of a mystical quality, kind of a, you know, the, you know, in some ways it's a little bit corny. I, mean, I was maybe a little embarrassed to show the letter in some ways because it, it could sound a little bit cliche, but that that's, I hadn't, I wasn't aware of the cliches back then, if you know what I mean. No, totally. No. And it sounds gorgeous. And I mean, just to say quickly, and you hadn't done psychedelics. No. No, yeah. although I'm in hindsight, after reading Michael Pollan's book, I imagine that that part of the pineal gland might have been engaged through, uh, you know, music, altitude, oxygen deprivation, and you know, or, you know, and 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 just the the beauties, the sheer beauty. I mean, you he talks about kind of um, mystical experiences that may have been catalyzed just by you know, you know, naturally without drug free, if you, if you will. For many people in order to have that experience, you need to be catalyzed by a psychedelic, mm-hmm. but not everybody. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, and that's kind of why I, I always kind of got a little annoyed when people said, yeah, you must've done a lot of drugs to do blue man, to make blue man. And we, because I was like, well, you know, we didn't, we were working really hard and we were trying to make a, drug-like experience in a way, or like a a, 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 a kind of vivid, I, I don't think we ever said drug-like, but, you know, the vividness and the sense of, you know, connectedness, perhaps, the sense of maybe some egolessness, if you think of the character being three as one, you know. Um, so some of the trappings of, of, of what you hear about in mystical hallucinogenic experiences um, is always what we were trying to create, but but for the mainstream, so that you know you didn't have to necessarily and you know to you know do hallucinogens to have that vividness. I actually had a one point that's a not nearly as profound, but for me very important similar experience where the plants suddenly turned on and started talking to me at one point. Mm, yeah. That was my that was my kickoff moment into this crazy experience that I've been kind of trying to. Make sense out of everything. You since. visualized, or you heard, or you you, you I imagined, was, or it seemed real. I was working on a keynote for a technology conference in a friend's house in Berkeley, California, but I was all alone because he was out of town. And uh, I was walking outside to get lunch. It was spring. All the shrubbery was fresh. The you know leaves really beautifully fresh green. But I was a, you know, I'm a New York guy and I was not particularly connected to nature. And I was living in Chelsea at the time and like just not, you know, I'm perfectly happy with concrete. But I was walking out of the house 
And I took maybe three steps out the house and about to make a right onto the sidewalk. And the plants there suddenly were glowing with all of this energetic communication Mm. and grabbed me. And it was as if they were talking to me, but there was not as if, Mm -hmm. there was no sentences, uh, but there was a tremendous amount of information and I was enwrapped and couldn't move, frankly, for a long time. Slowly I moved, I mean, I would look at one little branch of buds and then follow it to the next plant that was I, I, you know, I know nothing about botany. I don't know what any mm-hmm. of these plans were called. And, but I was just so overwhelmed by their uniqueness and beauty and intelligence. And every aspect of the, of the, of the branch leading to the next branch, to the next bud, to the next leaf was just so entrancing. It took me an hour to get to the corner. Wow. You know? And then finally, I was managing to sort of move a little bit more in the physical realm that I was, my body is in. I have a very strong memory of a guy walking a dog, walking past me, thinking, oh my God, just don't look at me. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> right, the, there's that self-consciousness or like, this must look crazy. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm sure it was on some level. But on the other hand, it was an incredible opening for me. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I made it a few blocks from where I was to Telegraph Avenue, which is, you know, the main street in Berkeley that leads to the gate to the university. And on that street are all these used bookstores and, you know, student bookstores, which I knew really well. That was my, my, my hang, basically. So I made my way to something that felt familiar, right, which was a bookstore. And I walked into the bookstore and on the front table, at the bookstore were a bunch of remaindered books that, you know, like half, whatever, five bucks because they're trying to, the publisher's trying to clear them out. And there was one book there by Trungpa, who was the, uh, the, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher who opened Naropa University. He's really the guy responsible for bringing Tibetan Buddhism mm. to the West. And he was Allen Ginsberg's teacher. Mm. And I had spent a bunch of time at Naropa visiting Ginsberg and our circle of friends Right, basically, um, and had some familiarity with it, though I wasn't a practicing meditator or, to, or Buddhist by any stretch. But I walked in, I saw the cover of the book. It was about Tantra. I picked up the book, opened it up arbitrarily to a page in the middle, and started reading a description of exactly what had just happened to me mm. on the sidewalk. I was like, I bought the book. Now, do you find uh, that when you're in certain flows in life, that that kind of serendipity happens, and then when you're out of the flow, the the serendipity kind of goes away, or or is, or is there is life, you know, a certain amount of coincidence is statistically inevitable? I mean, where where do you stand on that? I think for me, and I see this in other people that I know, it has to do with my receptivity to the thing when it starts to come in. My sense is, and this is something Richard Foreman used to tell me all the time because he's so tuned in to this kind of thing, is that everybody has that kind of shot happening at some point or another, one way or another, but most of us just don't pay attention. Right. We dismiss it. The book might have been there and you walk by it. 
Totally. Right. Or, you know, the plant might have been talking and you're like, oh man, you know, what time is it? I go get, you know, I got to get the next cup of coffee and I got something to do in an hour and a half. Right. You're in that sort of goal-oriented, you know, hero mode. Totally. Something has got to crack in your essentially materialist worldview in order to make room for this thing that's trying to get your attention, right? And it's kind of knocking on the door. It's probably knocking on the door all the time, right? But you're just not answering the door, you know? You're thinking, this is nuts. (laughs) I can't go there. I'm a serious person in the world, right? I got to deliver a technology keynote at this conference in two days. I better get my act together, right? Who's got time for what? Plants, right? There's an arrogance to the myth of our own volition, right? I mean, this the, the, you go to the self-help sections, you know, there's a lot of enlightenment stuff, but there's a, even more about how to get your goal and how to achieve and how to, you know, it's endless. Get, and, and those are basically training us to feel like we're, you know, gods, like we're the masters of our destiny, which is cool. That sounds great. And I think to some extent, I want my kids to feel that they're empowered to create a future for themselves. But at the same time, on some level, in a way I can't quite describe or articulate, but there's a kind of an arrogance to thinking that we have so much, you know, power over over destiny. Well, let me ask you, okay, because you've accomplished, you guys accomplished so much through Blue Man. Mm. It's huge. Shows happening simultaneously in different cities around the world, five or six, touring companies, Grammys, music, everything, right? You have a school. (laughs) I don't know if you have a school, but you guys found a school. There is a school. school. (laughs) There is a blue school. At some point, you must have recognized that Blue Man is an energetic, vibrational thing. We didn't get traction until, and I didn't get traction as an artist um, or, or as in anything until I gave up. I literally had a darkest hour um, and I was not young. I was like, you know, I tried after college to be a kind of drummer at night and a PR person in the day or some some kind of job where I could use my Wesleyan degree. And I, I reached the point where, and then I, I actually even took the, what do you call it? The, the, the test for business school. Oh, you're right. I mean, it's crazy. I went to, I went to Stanley Kaplan to try to learn the math that I'd never learned. And, uh, I was really off the path and I was really forcing my, I've got to get, you know, I've got to get some sort of job. And that's the whole thing. Goal directed. Yeah. You're going to push, you're going to make your reality recognized by the rest of the universe. Yeah. And I remember, I actually remember being in a bathtub, like some kind of movie, you know, some song like, where somebody's just bottomed out, you know, and I was just like, I can't, this is, I just can't, I can't, I can't. And actually, here's the thing though, I had so much to lose. I was very fortunate to go to a great high school, you know, uh, I had financial aid. I got into Wesleyan, had financial aid. I was like, wow, I, yeah, I'm, I'm so lucky, you know, I got an education, I can't throw it away. I mean, Wesleyan's pretty liberal, but even that, I, I had this pressure, you know, I felt this pressure. But that's all stuff I created myself. Like, no one told, my parents didn't tell me that. They, they were actually, you know, very 
you know, you do you, you know? And uh, my father found his thing, you know, in theology. So he wasn't going to, and he was a civil rights guy. He was almost, I think he would have been disappointed if I got a, a high powered job actually. But he wasn't telling me I had to follow his footsteps is the point. My mother was a therapist. I finally just said, yeah, I, I, I forget it. I, I'm, 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 I'm going to become a waiter at Glorious Food, cater waiter, cater waiter. I mean, I, I'd been doing that, but I was like, I'm going to actually take it seriously, get health insurance there. I'm going to be in it for the long haul. And I'm going to start working, you know, with, uh, you know, it was with Matt and Phil at the time, but I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to actually, my plan is going to be, I'm going to make work for me, for us, for our friends, you know, for ourselves that probably has no commercial appeal. And there's no way I'll get a, uh, make a living from it. I'll be a waiter and I might be a waiter for 20 years or something, you know? So I have to like accept that. But the thing about being a caterer is you could work really hard for three weeks and take a week off and build a show and, or build, you know, so that's what we did. And, and as soon How as- How old I, were you then, by the way? It's about 26, yeah. or 27, 26. And it took, and, and I had been dabbling. And again, I'd always been a drummer and this kind of thing. And I liked science. I liked art history. I liked comedy. You can't study comedy in college, but I liked it. I wasn't, and I liked acting. Um, I liked theater, but I hadn't been a theater person, you know, in the schools. I was more into bands and stuff. And I liked comedies that were satirical or, you know, had some social um, commentary. And I liked reading books about social life. And I liked reading what artists had to say, even though I, I knew I wasn't a painter, but I remember reading Picasso say, you know, art is the lie that helps us realize the truth. You can interpret it so many different ways, but obviously a painting or a, a, a story in a theater isn't real. It's a, it's a lie in the, in the sense that there's an artifice to it, but it's trying to get at a truth of some kind. And what I also like about it, it isn't necessarily a profound, heavy truth about how we should all think or that. It just resonance, you know, resonance with the human condition. And also, like, if you think of an alien character, um, are these real aliens? No, of course not. It's never about aliens. It's never about robots. It's never, it's always about humans. It's about our truth. And we're just creating scenarios to capture the truth of being a fish out of water, being an outsider, being an other. Uh, a blue character is, is, you know, an other everywhere he or she goes. But you, you were know? saying that you had given up on the idea that you're going to actually reach a lot of people. I'd given up on that. And also, and yeah, and because there was no way we could possibly um, think that this would be something that we could make a living from doing. It was, and we would tell people, I would tell people as I was holding a tray, you know, I'd see people from college at a party, you know, the lawyers and stuff, and I'd be serving them a pig in a blanket or something. And they'd say, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, we get blue and we go around. And they're like, wow, good luck with that, you know? <laughs> And it was, but at the same time, I didn't, I, I, I thought I would have been the same way and it didn't bother me. I just was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy. Uh, and, and so that was, that was, that was one part of it is not having any worry about the goal. It was about the process and that got us grounded in kind of a beautiful, like we were going to enjoy the making of the show the performing of the show. And then it was over. We enjoy like cleaning it up and letting it go. And what, what did we learn from and it? There's a lot of cleaning up to do. A lot of cleaning up. It's all over the floor. Yeah, and we didn't have a paper. crew or anything. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. But so it was a labor of love, mm -hmm. but we didn't, we didn't have that pressure to 
d- deliver a success right away, and we didn't have the pressure to, you know, a couple of decades into the future, and now we're a big corporation. Ironically, that pressure came back. And so one of the reasons why I'm very happily not a part of the company right now is that I'm g- trying to find my way back, not just to the mountain, but to that state of no pressure to deliver any kind of you know, sort of organiz- organizational or societal or or financial success. Just being, you know, someone who can explore, enjoy the process. Maybe five people see it. Maybe five million people see it. But you, you can't be. It, 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 you can't hear that muse talking to you when you've got those goals that are c- confusing you. That you have all this v- power when you have way more power. When you listen. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And, but as, being able to hear it is not easy. It's not easy. I still don't. I I I've sometimes uh, think I'm listening, and then I I look for signs that maybe I, I haven't been. I'm, I, I'm forcing my way down a certain. I was. I'll tell you a quick story. I was I was on my scooter. I like to ride a a, a razor. You know, when I say scooter, sometimes people think it's a moped or something more appropriate for someone my age. But it's a it's a a, a kid's scooter, basically, uh, razor scooter, and I roam around, and I was, I was, I've been working on a certain script for a certain thing, a certain idea. I can't remember exactly which one it was, but I was going along, and and I, I spooked this person with three pit bulls in their hand, like on leash. They were coming out, and the, and the pit bull, one of them just pulled the person. They couldn't hold it, and the pit bull like put his teeth right into my thigh. Oh my god. And uh, I had I was wearing shorts, and it just the blood and everything. And I was like, "What? He just he just bit my leg." And he's like, "Well, don't worry, they've got their shots." And I'm like, "Yeah, but what if I was a kid?" And so I so I had all this stuff of like I should get their name and da da da. And I was like, "Ah, you know what? Ah, it's a sign." <laughs> and I just wrote off. And I got home. And like everyone was like, "Did you get their name?" I said, like, "Why? Why are we gonna have to put the dog to sleep or something?" I mean, I think that he he was traumatized too, the owner. But I was like, "I think I'm going the wrong direction. I think I, I think I'm going the wrong way." Now, of course, that's it's it. sort of stupid, right? No, no, I mean, no, I don't. I don't no. This is maybe, the universe. You well, you took it, it at that moment as the universe sending you yeah, a sign. And, and the thing about it is, yeah. it, even, and I'm not saying it was the universe. What I'm saying is that we all are the the, the authors of our narrative. And so I chose to make that the narrative. I, I I don't know. When if, you say you chose it, okay. okay so here's but, I'm going to challenge you on that. So, what is it that you noticed that made you want to pay attention to it? That is to say, are there signs? Are there signs in your body? Are there physical things you notice? So for me, for whatever it matters, you know, I'll get a thing in my heart. It'll be like a, like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. oh 
That's it. That's real. Okay. That's my, that I know is my intuition talking basically, right? Rather than my overthinking or my nervousness or my fear. Yeah. Right? Because all those things would come at you. Your fear will come at you too. You're like, oh man, I'll never be able to pull that off. Yeah. I'm not, you know, whatever enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not deserving or whatever it is. And everybody's got that on some level. When you're more in the zone of listening, what does it feel like? There's an expansiveness in my, in my chest. Yeah. And then there's something, sometimes like a little ping. Yeah. They're like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. What's that? Okay, good. All right, I'm in a good place. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does seem like there's a wisdom in the body. Like the part of our um, satellite dish is our body. Absolutely. Right? Totally. We have to interpret it with our mind. But I think if, you're, if I really were to look about that day, my mind, okay, yeah. See, it's, it's my mind saying, oh, no, I don't know if it's real. I was I started making a narrative. That's all very intellectual. But something was going on in my body that had me not respond in the typical, like, oh, my God, you just violated me. I'm now angry. I'm going to fight you. I was like, no, I had no interest in engaging. I was um, already actually knew that I was on the wrong path. And I just needed something to kind of confirm it. Yeah. And so I didn't have any anger. I'm not something I'm not capable of it. If some, you know what I mean. But you know, no one. I mean, a pit bull is designed to do that. <laughs> I was a little. I wanted the person to know that. You know, they should. Cons- I didn't want a kid to be the next victim. You know. Yeah, that's real. But at the same time. Yeah, I think my body was in a different... And, you know, maybe I'm on a scooter, so I'm in my body. That's what I like about the scooter. I'm in my body on the scooter, you know? And you have to pay attention, too. Like, if you're going around New York on a scooter, you'll fall if you don't pay attention to the cracks. Oh, yeah. You'll you'll fall. You'll hit somebody. And you know what's interesting, by the way, if I can take a slight tangent? Yeah, go for it. Metaphorically speaking, on the scooter, the things that will make you fall are kind of interesting. You never fall from a line, a crack that's perpendicular to where you're going. It's always the ones going the same direction, but just one or two degrees off. Uh Your wheel gets stuck in them, and then you go, you veer off, and then you fall. The bumps that are perpendicular, you know they're coming. You 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 lift. You instinctively lift the front wheel a little well, bit. It looks like it should be a real wall kind of obstacle. You can get through. You it. get through it unless it's, it's a really distraction. It's, it's the, the subtle one. It's man. a subtle thing. That it's takes that you crack off that's saying. Like, it's the crack that's like a, like a Hollywood agent going. I know what you you are. I, we, we've got exactly. <laughs> we, we're going to do this just right. Uh, it's like the guys that we, we we spoke to at the the Lakers. Los Angeles Lakers, um, when we first got going and, and we had some notoriety, they said, hey, you know, you've got this Vegas show and we'd love you to do a halftime performance. It could be good. And we're like, well, LA is pretty far from Vegas, but at the same time, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a feeder market. You know, it's kind of where, you know, they're kind of joined at the hip in a way. A lot yeah, of the people sure. are 25. So we're like, well, this is interesting. So was, yeah, you know, we, we, it was just kind of like spinal type. I said, "We love your work." I said, "Have you seen the show?" No, I mean, I've seen the, I've seen the video or something. But he goes, um, "So yeah, but we we get it. You know, you guys are like, you know, it's an energy, and uh, you know, the, you, you, all, everybody likes you. You know, it, it's not an age thing, and um, and you know, do, do you think you could do it in the colors purple and yellow though?" Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here, I want to ask you about this. 
tell me about the blue. Yeah. Well, I did- it's a very specific blue, and everybody knows yeah. it. Yeah. It's not a normal blue. You did something with that blue. Where did it come from? <laughs> well, I have been asked this question before, and I pride myself on answering it differently each time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Tell me. About I mean, okay. to some degree. Uh-huh. Well, first, there was an image of a blue person that was bald, and that just sort of came, right? I mean, you could understand. That was more of an image in the mind's eye of something that felt right, felt the right amount of shocking and compelling, the right amount of serious and funny. Mm-hmm. Somehow other colors uh, seemed like they would skew one way or the other more, like maybe yellow or orange, kind of funny, clowny colors, you know what I mean? Or maybe they had uh, too much, uh, you know, green was sort of, you know, that's a Martian, right? It's too, it's too on the nose or something. Um, and then... Uh, so you get the, the image, and then you say, oh, that's kind of good because in a way that blue head kind of floating on the black on the black tunic is almost like, you know, the, the earth from space, you know? It's, it's other, but it's us, you know? So it's a, it's a mixture of other and us, right? It's, 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 and, and then, but I, the deepness of it. So now you get to the deepness of it where it's like you, it's harder to focus on it in a way, and it's like you can light it, and it, and it has a mystery to it. And, um, and it, and and you can add a little purple light to it, so then it becomes this sort of weird cobalt blue, Eve Klein blue, almost you know, kind of hard, kind of plays with. And if you know the artist James Terrell, plays with that spectrum of light, and he talks about you know you can't really focus on it. your eyes can't quite comprehend the magnitude. There's something magical about. I we didn't again. I'm being intellectual now, and I'm speaking after the fact, but we were drawn to it because it felt. It felt magical to us. And our project has always been about magic, right? About trying to um, uh, remember magic or create an experience of the magic of life. Not, not the magic of a magician who can do a trick. And, the, and then what, if you see a great magician, he, you're, you're awed at the person. It doesn't spread. I don't get to take any of it home. I don't go, aren't we amazing? I can only go, wasn't the magician amazing? How did he or she do that? Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in more shareable magic. You know, oh, isn't it amazing? Aren't we amazing? Isn't life amazing? You know? And blue seems like it has that magical quality. That's the best way I can describe it. I was asked by somebody to ask you about the relationship between blue and the void. Yeah, well, okay. But again, after the fact, we were very excited to learn about Eve Klein. And, uh, but it was after we'd already created the character. And then we go, wow, this guy in 1959, 1960, 1961, until his death, right around 63 maybe, was fascinated with the, the same you know, kind of spectrum blue. And uh, at first, when we did our shows, we could only get the blue that was available. So um, Maron and um, uh, some of these theatrical companies had, you know, clown grease paint, and there was a blue. But it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a shade or two brighter back then. And then, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly fair question. As we uh, got to know more about Eve Klein, I said, you know, that color... I, and I was so fortunate to go to be able to go to London to see his exhibit at the Haywood Gallery 
um, where he had a whole room full of just the blue paintings. And it, it, it was a recreation of kind of how they had been uh, presented back when he was alive. Because if you go to the, a museum now, you'll see one you know, in a cluttered wall with all these other masterpieces. And it's hard to have a mystical experience. But in this room, with just the blue paintings, the Yves Klein blue. Um, Which is very rich and It's dark. rich. And it does have a little bit of that purple I was describing. It isn't pure blue, right? It's got the cobalt end, and then it's got just that little bit of red mixed in. You know what I mean? It, you, you don't know it as red, but it's it's moving towards violet, if you know what I mean, just inching its way towards it. And that's a get where some of its magic comes from. But in that room with all those paintings, you really felt like I was looking at windows into the void. And then, of course, he's got the most amazing, people can uh, Google it if they're listening, the, the painter of space leaps into the void where he did that jump. And he, uh, it was, apparently it was. I he, bought that as a postcard yeah. when I was a, in college. I remember seeing that postcard. Yeah. Oh, I was, it yeah. stopped me in my tracks. And we, we, we've used that, uh, references to that and over the years, Blue Man, but. It's a photograph of him jumping off a building. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, right? it's, it's off a ledge. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he supposedly really did it, but then they recreated it, and it was maybe with some, you know, there were maybe have been some photographic tricks to get the actual picture. But the point is, he's just looking with no fear, looking up, and he's doing a swan dive, and it's he's about you know fourteen feet up off of a co cobblestone street in in France, and so the idea of the void and the idea of a sort of the magic quality you know that Eve Klein and James Turrell had explored uh, of this blue was 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 not lost on us and so we just um as we got you know more steady the the makeup companies would customize the 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 you know the, the makeup because we were their we were their number one blue makeup customer so next thing you know you know Alcom Paramount uh a wonderful family-owned business there. And, uh, you know, this guy, Mitch, was so sweet. I mean, they would literally, you know, send us test, you know, these big vats of this grease, which, by the way, is incredibly fun to put on. I mean, it, when you when you smear it on over your head, we purposely made the character, like, not, you know, this airbrushed, you know, alienation type of thing. It's It's a gooey and meant to be painterly layer you know, and also kind of mud manish, you know, kind of like primal gooey, you know, and so you really don't have to labor over it too much. You have to kind of, you know, do the eyes carefully. And then after that, you just go blah and just smear it on. It's this incredible. Did you do it on sort of, each other? Did you do it on yourself? Like who gets your lower back, your upper back and stuff like that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, actually, you know, we have the tunic and so it's really just the neck, the neck and, you know, the neck up. And uh, once we got, once we were open for more than four or five months, we actually got a, a, a costume wardrobe person. But up to that point, we were on our own. We used to go to a Mars bar. I remember once Matt and I went and Phil, and we went into the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And they get, fortunately, they had two bathrooms. We went into the bathroom, and you know, the, the three of us go into this bathroom together. That Mars, that Mars bar bathroom was not very big. No, it was not very big. And, and 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 it was pretty dark. It was pretty dark. And but we we pulled out <laughs> Mars Bar is like yeah. a great punk rock dive bar that yeah. was not far from CBGB's back in the right. day. Right. No, it was on yeah. First Street and First Avenue, I think. And it was a, it was a classic place. And we but we we put the bald caps, glued them on. We were kind of helping each other, you know, we you have to get help with the bald caps. And then, you know, put the 
blew on. And then we walked out and sat at the bar. And it was one of the first experiments. We just, you know, it was a social experiment. Like, what will happen? That's so great. When we when we sit at the bar, and we, we and that's that was a lot of what we did in the early days. We just go to different places, and see what would happen at the time. And at the, in those days, we would we would we would actually talk. Sometimes we didn't have the character developed yet. We would, we didn't talk a lot. But people were like, "What are you guys doing?" And we we're like, oh, "We don't know really." And like, well, it's kind of cool. Can I buy you a drink? We're like, "Thank you. That'd be great." So you knew at a certain point what the blue man vibe was. You knew there was a, there was something where you were tapping into you were tapping into it, and you're like, "Oh, we're serving this." Yeah, I think so. And do you remember when that happened? Well, for you? people. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, when we would do a lot of shows that were very mixed at best in their success, you know, and and. Um, but when when they hit, when something hit, a moment hit, and you saw the response, it, it felt special. It felt like it was hitting on a primal level, even that we didn't predict. A lot of times the things that were special weren't the things we thought they would be. And then the other thing that was interesting, we were kind of developing the character in real time. Like I said, we, we, we didn't know exactly. Let's talk about that for a second. The character. There's three yeah. of you. No, it's just the blue man. One, three versions Three instances of the yeah, one. Yeah, because we, we were interested in how our culture, you know, back then, especially America, right? From its beginning, there's this individualism. And there's this, um, it's it's different in Asia, uh, but they say, in, uh, who was it that said, um, you know, the reputation of Japan is that it's a, you know, collective, but, you know, under the surface, they're, they're very fiercely individualistic, you know, and then in America, the reputation is that we're individualistic, but we're really very, you know, a collective that's trying to fit in in a lot of different ways. But nonetheless, there is a sense of, you know, our own identities and our own preciousness around our own, you know, finding ourselves and finding who we are and, and uh, you know, celebrity culture and everything, you know, who's the person and, 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 you know, it's me, me, me. And so we were interested in a kind of, again, I had been a punk rock drummer, so that I thought another way of being kind of punk rock would be to create characters that were collective, that didn't. Uh, point attention to themselves. And in a sense, that's another part of the punk rock aesthetic is that, you know, you're collective. You're not necessarily the best, you're not going to be Eddie Van Halen or, you know, whatever, you're not, no, or, or, or some celebrated, you know, soloist. Uh, uh, you, you're making a sound together. Like, so like the Ramones, you know, they were, it, was, it was the collective. Um, and um, so we thought it would be kind of rebellious, especially back then when, you know, even in the under comedy performance world, you know, everyone was still their name, you know, it was your name. And we weren't our name. And not only that, we weren't the three stooges. It was the blue man, you know, the blue man group. Yes. But it was still the blue man, you know, and it was like, that's true. So you must've had a moment where you went blue men. No, not blue men. Yeah. Right. Did you have a conversation? No, we had a conversation. In fact, we had, we had women involved in, in, and we were thinking, oh, I was like, well, you can't really, I'm sorry. We didn't have blue women, but we had people that were helping that were women. And we were like, should, should we just be the blue people? And, and everyone was like, ah, it doesn't sound right. I remember this one woman named Sally. She said, um, yeah, no, but, uh, blue man group sounds good. It's, it's cool. You can even have women in it if you want. It's even interesting if, if there were women in it and you were a blue man group. So like, all right, that's cool. I mean, in, in hindsight, I do wish there's a part of us that wished many, many steps along the way that we hadn't gone a gender 
because it, it it never was about gender for us, and it was only random that the three of us, you know, were were friends and were so you know. Uh, but it was about the collective. And that was one of the things that gave it a sense of a vibe that was bigger than us. It wasn't about us individually. It was about the group. And then I remember one show, we did something, a piece, and and a, a, a woman uh, who worked at Performance Space 122 um, uh, came up to us afterwards and said, do you mind if I give you guys a note? And we're like, well, that's interesting. Yeah, sure. I, there was a point where one of you grabbed the jello and kind of slammed it against the chair. And I just don't think the blue man would do that. That's so fun. That's great. Now, you can't go up to some actor in Broadway and say, you know, I don't think your, you know, your character would do that. It's, it's their character, right? You can't go up to, you know, Cranston on Broadway now and say, you know, you can't say anything, even about the early, the movie, uh, you know, of of uh, what network. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't matter. It's his character. It's it's sacred. It's holy. But when someone people started saying, you know, the blue man, I think the blue man, uh, you know, is a kinder soul than that. I, I think it would have risen above in that moment and found a way to incorporate that and use it differently. Yeah, I think the blue man would have turned it into a fun instrument versus being kind of angry like you were. It was very human. It was very, and, a, and the wrong, of, of an emotion I don't think the blue man actually had. And so we're like, wow, people, this is not just ours. You know, this is a thing that we've given, we've created enough of, enough of a sketch that everybody else can help us fill it in. Did the blue man ever speak to you? Because in the show, blue man does not talk. But when you're alone, when you are alone privately with the blue man in your dream, did you ever hear the blue man speak? Yes, but not with words. Well, like the plants that I yeah. encountered on the yeah, street in Berkeley. Yeah, I think <laughs> I really started hearing the blue man talk much more once we stopped letting the blue man talk and us talk. It was like, okay, the blue man speaks with music, with drums, with posture, with the way the three of them triangulate in space. You know, one of the things we had to do Consciously, when we're on stage, we're together. We had to think of where the other two were at all points and make sure where we were standing was a deliberate choice. It didn't have to be an exact equilateral triangle, but it was going to be a triangle no matter what it was. And we were artists of triangulation. And so what would be a good, for this moment, triangle? Would it be a flat one, a, a pointy one? One really small and up close, you know, should we stretch it? You know, so um, th that was a very different way of thinking. And so in a way, getting out of language had us able to listen to the world around us for clues and express non-verbally the way the, the blue man might. So as the show developed, as the performances developed, at a certain point, did you begin, because you started by, you're saying, doing the things that interested you that you mm -hmm. thought nobody else was going to respond to, right? At a certain point, people start to respond. Did you start to think more deliberately about what kind of response you wanted to get? Well, in a way, I mean, we were big fans of, of vaudeville. 
So when I say I wasn't expecting a big response, I wasn't necessarily expecting it to be commercially successful and have a big audience. But when we did perform, we did care what the audience, what the reaction was. It wasn't, I mean, I, 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 you know, Richard Foreman is an example, someone I admire, Laurie Anderson, m- many other real performance artists or experimental theater where they're doing something and they really, you know, it's not about what the audience how they respond, you know, it's kind of like a, a level of art, and you, you, each person can look at it the way they want. We didn't feel that that's what we were. We felt more in the vaudevillian tradition, and we were doing one of the things we were doing was comedy. And when we did comedy, we, if people didn't laugh, that was a problem. Now it wasn't like, oh, you know, now we're you know broken up about it, or now you know, but we would try to figure out what it was that didn't work. You know, and so um, we did try to really just create what we would like to see, you know, and um, and we're we're tough customers. We like to be really, you know, we like to we like to laugh hard. We like the music to be good. We like strong, you know. So so we we created for ourselves, and 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 I guess our taste ended up kind of matching what you know other people would like. We didn't know if kids would like it. It wasn't really meant for kids. Yeah. I mean, kids go crazy over it. Yeah, well, I mean, we were, it was it was meant to create a childlike experience for adults, and yes. then obviously children come in. But it's kind of like it's a very different thing in 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 the theater. The children come off as the wise people. <laughs> exactly, they get the jokes yep. before the adults. They under they, they they you know they lead the way. They they don't suppress their laughter, and um, so it, it's funny to see that. Yeah, so you wanted a response, obviously, but then also do you start to think about what you were doing in terms of releasing the opportunity for adults to experience play in that way. Yeah, it started to, it started to, um, I mean, that's maybe what, what uh, made us drawn to the school idea because we thought, wow, when do we lose our, our ability to play? At what point, you know, Ken Robinson talks about when we lose our, Creative creativity and our divergent thinking—you know—it's schooled out of us. And I and I had the same experience. I was like, "When did I? When did I lose my ability to see the colors uh, on the mountain, but also to play with the toys on the ground?" You know what I mean? And um, so we started wondering about, you know, what? How could things be different so that parents, uh, grown-ups, didn't quite grow up? They grew out, you know, and um, or they, I don't know what the right wordplay is there, but like, it doesn't seem like it's a good idea to grow completely up. And there's a, that's a theme in many, you know, Peter Pan and all these other things about, you know, staying youthful. But no matter how many of those movies you've seen, you still find yourself it happening to you, you know, a life kind of straightens oh, you up. You know? Yeah, well, that, that, that the, the life that you're leading sort of beats it out of you somehow yeah. and that, you know, the school that you go to kind of forces you to sit at a desk yeah. and stay still and listen to the teacher and yeah. yada, yada, yada. And, and, and I remember distinctly at my high school, I I told my vice principal, who was also my uh, advisor or whatever, that I was, I'd, I'd gotten a, a job through someone my mom knew where I was his sub at the Hawaii Kai as a drummer, as a Hawaiian drummer for like, he, he he's just kind of, he was a drum teacher of mine, but he got me a, a little gig on a weekend and he just scratched his head. He was like, why would you, why would you squander your, your prep school education 
doing something like that. He just couldn't understand it. And, uh, and I had to take drum lessons outside of school. They didn't teach it at school, you know? And, um, uh, and they didn't teach comedy back then. I'm sure they do now in some places, but so a lot of my education happened outside of school, and I, I thought that was that wasn't that, that wasn't right. Um, but also, I almost lost all my joy, you know. And I was able to get it back. I guess our show has a climbing the mountain side, the mystical side, and it has the silly play in the mud side, both. And we kind of go back and forth, toggle back and forth. So I was looking to get up to the mountain and back into the playpen, you know, by by jumping off of the the career track, the normal career track. Well, know? I got to say, you know, when you talk to the average New Yorker and say that, you know, the Blue Man Group has a school called the Blue School, if they don't know the school already, it, it inept, first of all, smile, Right? Like, wow, really? And then it's also like, what? It's like, because somehow in the kind of conventional mind's eye, you know, splattering paint and throwing toilet paper across the room in the theater just doesn't seem to match up to what you think of as quote unquote education. Yeah. And we, you know, uh, <laughs> the school has to make it clear that it isn't a blue man in training school. And there's a, there's at this point in time, the school's, you know, been around for 11 years. So it's differentiated itself. It's really the blue school. But oh, it's a remarkable institution. It's a remarkable place. And you walk in there and it feels like, oh my God, so established. And there's so much resource here and so many warm and intelligent and professional people creating an educational experience for kids. But you're coming at it through a different door. Yeah. Then, the old school school. Well, I mean, also, you have to look below the surface, which is also one of the themes of, of the show, in a way, to understand the similarities. Because it really isn't about the crazy, you know, blue paint and all that stuff. I mean, even with our show, there was always a balance. You know, there's a balance of sort of science and play and exploration, you know. And um, from the very beginning, the concept for the Blue School wasn't, oh, we're just going to have a school about creativity. It was always going to be about balance. It was going to be, you know, a kind of three-legged table that was held up by, uh, you know, ac academic mastery, creativity, and social and emotional intelligence. Those are the three pillars that we thought were necessary, and each one strengthened the others. If you have academic mastery, but without social-emotional intelligence, and without creativity, which is, is going to be really necessary in a world that's changing so much, then you know, have you really gotten academic mastery? But if you have a school that's just about creativity, but you're not getting the tools you know, of academic mastery, you have never had anything against that. You know? You're not really preparing someone for the rigors of the real world. You know? um, and you can't just be talking about social-emotional intelligence all day long. But when I went to school, that wasn't even on the table. It wasn't even part of the conversation. That was all free for all. It was Lord of the Flies, you know, in, in between classes, you know, right. in and the hallway, in the hallway, and out on the playground. It's a, there's all these social hierarchies, and the and the school had they just washed their hands of it. Like that's not our business, you know. Parents too, they were just completely checked out. And so I think that the the other um, secret sauce that we don't talk about in both Blue Man and the Blue School is love. You know, our show we never say it, but. It's, it's all about love, really. It's very loving. Right. It is. And, and the school. We were able somehow to attract the type of teachers that really, you know what, they say to themselves, you know, I know this is kind of crazy, but I want to bring my heart 
to the table. I'm actually willing to, I love this. I love the, the job and I, I'm, I'm going to love the kids. I love the kids. I love my kids. And we can't, we can't ask them to do that. We can't tell them to do that. We can't post it. We can't say it on our website. Our teachers love the kids. We can't do that. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about it here, but I'm not sure I've ever talked about it because you, you can't. And then somebody from the, from the far right will, will make fun of you and say, ah, oh, some love school is all weird or something. <laughs> but the truth is you go into the school and you look at the teachers, the kind of people that have been attracted to the place. They're they're bringing their heart and soul into it, you know, and that to me, is is everything. That's that's the thing. So how do you generate an environment that encourages that? Well, you you, I mean, you try to attract that. You try to you you you, you know, that's. I mean, everyone's trying to do that. And I'm not saying Blue School is the only place that has teachers like that. There are many amazing teachers. In fact, we can probably all look back on a, on a great teacher that we had that was like that. You know, they either believed in us or just believed in the subject so much that it was kind of beautiful. Um, somehow the people running the school, their, the way they embody it, uh, and the, the early adopter parents that we had, they were all there out of love. You know, the teachers that went there, I mean, the, the parents that, that brought their kids there were like, all right, I think this school's worth it. Because of my love of my kid, I really think I want them to have that extra social-emotional intelligence, that extra, you know. Um, you brought some really amazing people. Yeah. Like Ken Robinson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sir, Sir Ken Robinson, we should say. He'll get mad at us if we don't. No, I'm just kidding. And he has, you know, you can check him out on, he's got a TED Talk that's been watched like four or five million times. I think it's times. the number one TED Talk, at least it was for a while. Yeah. yeah. And he's he's on the advisory board. Um, Dan Siegel. Dr. Dan Siegel. It's amazing. Yeah. Amazing people. So you're actually innovating at the school through the leadership of some of the world's top education experts who are looking at creativity at this balanced approach. Yes. To, to well, what educational we, growth. What we found is that these these innovators and thinkers are looking for places like laboratories that will really try it. And they can't, and sadly, they're turned away often from sort of the, the bureaucratic, you know, educational mainstream. You know, it's it's um it's too risky. You know, you know, there was a big uproar in LA when somebody tried to get m- mindfulness into the school and somebody's like, oh, you're brainwashing our kids to, you know, with a religion or something. Uh, I remember a, a Goldie Hawn was involved in some project like that where she was trying to literally, you know, putting money and effort into helping get mindfulness into the schools. And there was this big backlash. And oh, that's it's crazy. And, and this, the, 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 the streets of the educational world are, are, are just littered with, you know, the roadkill of well-intended, you know, people trying to, to give it a boost, you know, Steve Jobs being one of them, you know. He just gave up, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to pull out. He was really interested in education and using technology. And it just, he just couldn't handle the the roadblocks. So what you guys were able to do is to put into motion a container that could attract real resources and also give these innovators an opportunity to try things out. Yes. And the results have been remarkable from what I know from people who are very involved. Well, the results are the kids, and they are amazing. So a couple of years ago, you guys sold Blue Man. 
Is that fair? Is that what well, you did? It's, it's, that, did you actually sell it or what, what happened? It, it, well, it's a series of steps. You know, Matt moved out first to work, focus on the school. Phil and I were around for a little while with an investor in. And then we all got out. Uh, and um, yeah, we sold the company to Cirque du Soleil. Was it hard to say goodbye? Well, you know, obviously it was uh, strange, but for me, it was weirdly not hard. And I, I, part of me thought I should have done it sooner um, because it became a uh, burden to keep it going and keep everybody, you know, keep this wonderful community going. But I felt like we, we carried that burden on ourselves. Um, and I'm really enjoying being kind of a scrappy artist again. So what obsesses you now? What really gets you going? <laughs> well, th there's a couple of things that I'm interested in doing. They're all kind of in an incubation phase. But um, I am actually interested in, in in creating some of these, you know, there's a lot of these pop-up experience rooms that are, po fo you know, uh, I, my kids, I take them sometimes. I'm not always impressed by them, but the, people go and they'll take their Instagram photos and there's different rooms. But I, I I fantasize about giving that the, you know, I'm not saying the blue man twist because it wouldn't be blue man at this point, but playing the game of trying to reacquaint people with the magic of being alive, trying to create that vivid experience um, in in that kind of medium. Now, that's one of the things I'm I'm kind of toying with doing. So that experience you had when you were a teenager, the colors on the mountain. Yeah. Have you gotten back to that? You mean in actual In your mountains? own experience. In your own experience. Do you feel like you've attained that, that experience again or something akin to it? I feel it? like it's like uh, there's these mountains and peaks and valleys. And that, that, that over the years, I've gotten back to the mountain uh, several times. And then I, I thought I was on the mountain, for example, at Blue Man Group. If you, looked, if you asked me three, four years ago— I said, well, I'm 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 on the mountain, right? I'm I'm still a Blue Man Group, but that mountain had become a valley because it was a job. You know, it was it was not just a job. It was it, it, it's not that I didn't care about the work or I cared about it any less. It was just that I was so engaged in the day to day, and I was the stress of like, oh, we can't, you know, we 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 got to keep the organization going. We got to keep this big, you know, sort of. It was. It's not a bureaucracy, but we have to keep it going. And so that 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 at a certain point, and and the um, even the even creating within the universe of one project was limiting. You know, like when I was st starting off, I didn't have any limits. And so um, I think going back to what you said earlier about the feeling in your body, there I was when on what I thought was a mountain, but when I checked my feeling, I realized I was in a valley. I needed to get out, and now I'm climbing again, and I feel like I'm on the foothills. I have little glimpses, like at Burning Man, uh, at a show, during a song, uh, looking into my partner's eyes, my lover's eyes, my beloved's eyes, um, seeing my kids. There are little moments, even um, the way the snow looked when it was so small when we were skiing once uh, on a mountaintop. There's little, I was on a mountaintop, so I guess that's why I felt like I was on a mountaintop. But no, there's little glimpses 
where I'm reminded. I may not feel like I'm actually all the way up the mountain, but there's little glimpses everywhere. And like you said, as I, I was, I was practicing a little bit of the presence uh, exercises at the Alchemist Kitchen just the other night with um, Marquise, and um, I do find that those exercises and practices in the yogic traditions, tantra, and um, help me see the glimpses. It isn't just that it reduces the stress and this and that. I, I, I am able to listen and see the, the magic or the view from the top uh, more. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. This was awesome. I really appreciate the conversation. Oh, it was man. a lot of Me fun. Too. I, I did. I enjoyed it as well. I want to thank Chris Swink for being a guest on the show. And thank you, too, for listening to this and being with us. And also thanks to our producer, Jose Alfaro, and to the ACAST team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Sunu from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone Gone Beyond. Please check him out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.